Welcome to Stone Point Church. Uh, I want to start out today, it's Memorial Day weekend, and so if you uh, represent someone perhaps in your family or close friend that uh, gave their life in service to our country, or you yourself are a veteran or active serving in military, would you please stand so we can honor you today? Thank you guys for your service. We really appreciate uh, all that you've done for our country. So this morning, I want to start out by asking you guys to imagine with me, what if Jesus was here today? What if we were to do like an interview style Q&A with Jesus, and you could ask Jesus any question that you wanted? I saw this funny post where kids were asking God for things that they wanted, and one kid said, Dear God, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money and my chest set. Dear God, how come you didn't invent any new animals lately? We still just have all the old ones. Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I really asked for was a puppy. Right? <laughs> Maybe you guys had a dog where the kids love the dog more than their little brother or sister. I don't know. But this morning, we're going to look in a passage at someone who could ask any, Jesus anything he wanted. So rich young ruler, he approaches Jesus, and what he asks Jesus about is the question of the afterlife. Something that I think all of us have wondered, what happens after we die? How can we have eternal life? So we're picking up the story today in Luke chapter 18, starting out in verse 18. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So we're introduced to this character. It's, he's, it says he's a ruler. He's perhaps a rich man, a rich young ruler he is called. So this rich man has been living to, listening to Jesus teaching for perhaps some time. He calls him good teacher. So we can assume that he's been listening to Jesus. And he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. I think his question is kind of weird because if you think about an inheritance or a trust or a will or something like that, what that is is, a, you know, the parents pass away. The parents have earned this inheritance themselves and they pass it on to their kids. So the kids do not earn their inheritance. They don't do anything for it. The parents have earned this for them. Yet this ruler is asking, what good thing can I do to inherit this gift of eternal life. So Jesus responds to him, saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And Jesus' response might seem disconnected. This guy's asking about eternal life, and then Jesus starts talking about God and what goodness is. But it is connected. God and his goodness is connected to the topic of eternal life that we see here. And here's how, our first point this morning, your view of eternal life is based on your view of God. If God is holy and high above all things, then eternal life would be pretty difficult to attain, in fact, impossible to attain for people who are lowly sinners. So this rich young ruler's question assumes that he can do something to be good enough, just good enough to be with God in heaven and have eternal life. The word holy means set apart, and God is holy. 
God whispered and the galaxies were formed. Stars, billions of times our own planet came into existence. Light came into existence. The raging oceans came into existence. God is all powerful. God is all holy. God is high above everything in all creation. When I think of the holiness of God, I think of that time in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah, he enters the temple, the throne room of God, and there are these seraphim, these angels with multiple wings, and with some of their wings, they're covering their eyes from the blinding light, and they're flying with their other wings, and they're crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the power of the praise, the seismic intensity of their worship is shaking the foundation of this throne room in the presence of a holy God. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in the presence of a holy God. If you look in the Old Testament, anyone who touched the Ark of the Covenant where the, ark, the presence of God resided over, anyone who touched the Ark would immediately die because God is so holy. I want you guys to think about your craziest friend. We all have one. If you don't have one, it's probably you, right? I want you to think about your crazy friend, that friend that would do anything or whatever. And this friend comes to you and they say, I want to be a long jumper. I want to be the greatest long jumper in the entire world. I'm going to train every single day. I'm going to eat just right. I'm going to practice. I'm going to get the best trainers. And I'm going to the Olympics. I'm going to win the gold medal. I'm going to break every world record. I'm going to be the best long jumper that there is. And you would say, okay. Sure, right? You need to go to the doctor or something? Like, did you hit your head? I don't know. But then they take it a step further. They say, I want to do something that no one could even imagine or fathom to do. I don't just want to break every Olympic world record. I want to jump from San Diego, California, 5,300 miles across the ocean to Japan. And you just, it just doesn't make sense. There's no rationality to that because California and Japan are just too set apart. They're too set apart for anyone to attain that themselves. God is holy. God is set apart. And the distance between a holy God and sinful people is far more than 5,300 miles. It's far more than that. That is how holy God is. So this rich young ruler says, what good deed can I do? How can I achieve that? How can I jump that far to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, let's talk about goodness. Only God is good. Jesus is pointing out that this guy has a delusional concept of goodness. A delusional concept of God and his goodness. So Jesus says only God is good. And here Jesus isn't denying his deity. If anything, he's affirming like, yes, you're right to call me a good teacher. Only God is good. But he's pointing to the ruler that God is the one who we should compare our goodness to and not others. I love to play basketball, and I played some in high school. And uh, compared to, like, the average person who maybe haven't, hasn't played that much basketball, if we were to play a game of horse, I would probably beat them. I'd probably feel good about myself if I just only played basketball with people who don't have as much experience as me or as tall as me or whatever that may be. But if I was to go play a game of, her, game of horse with Steph Curry, I'd probably lose in like three minutes, right? Because he's pretty much the greatest shooter in the world right now. It wouldn't compare. So how I view myself depends on who I'm comparing myself to. 
And so if I'm comparing myself and my goodness to others and their goodness, I'm going to feel pretty good about myself. I'm going to feel like I can have eternal life because I am so good. But if I compare myself to God and his goodness, my view is going to be different because God really is good. Jesus is saying if you want to know how good you have to be, you have to look at the one who actually is good. On just a, a side note, a brief side note I wanted to make here, uh, people make their idols to be like themselves, their God to be like themselves. We th- see this in scripture, we see this in our culture. So at this time, a lot of people were worshiping Roman gods. Uh, this particular rich young ruler uh, was probably Jewish because he talks about the law in, in just a second, but lots of people were worshiping Roman gods. And so if you look at the stories of Roman gods, they're a lot like us. They're a lot like people. They commit adultery. They're like lying and cheating and stealing and doing a lot of human things. So they made their gods to be like themselves. And what we do sometimes, even with the God of the Bible, is we make God to be like us. I am good. God must be good the way that I am good. God must love the way that I love. So our concepts of love and concepts of goodness become delusional because we're not comparing it to the one who really is good. Because God is so much better than that. But here's what happens when we do that. When we make God to be like us, what we're doing is we're lowering our view of God and we're elevating our view of self to bring those two things closer together. So rather than 5,003 miles, you bring God all the way over here to this low, less holy God, and you bring yourself up to this more holy person to maybe a distance of four feet, which you can easily jump. And it creates in your mind the idea, oh, I can do a good thing to be with God in heaven. But it's a lie because God is so, so Holy God's goodness is far above our own. And because the ruler had a superficial understanding of God's goodness, he did not see the sin in his own life. We see this in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 20 through 21. It says, you know the commandments. This is Jesus still talking. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. Matthew Henry in his commentary wrote, Men think themselves innocent because they are ignorant. He's ignorant. He said, I've kept the law from my youth. How many of you guys, I'm curious, who've raised children or have children in your house or raised youth, uh, that your children kept the whole law of God the entire time they were being raised in your household? Anybody? Nobody. How many of you guys from your youth kept all these things from your youth? You didn't dishonor your parents. You didn't do this or that. How many of you guys kept the whole law of God? None of us. But this rich young ruler is ignorant of his own sin, so he thinks himself to be innocent before a holy God. But sin separates us from God. Next point this, this morning is that I am a sinner, but there is a Savior. I'm a sinner, but there is a Savior. Let's talk about sin for a few moments. Don't look too excited. We don't get excited. We don't get jumping out. Let's talk about sin. Yeah, the crowd went wild. No, we don't do that, right? We're not excited to talk about sin because with sin comes guilt, comes condemnation, comes shame. 
We're not excited about that. But we need to talk about sin. We're going to talk about why we need to talk about sin. But we're going to talk about sin. Because this morning, I think we need to be humbled. And then we need to be lifted up. As God said, he who is humbled will be exalted. You want to be exalted, you got to be humbled. So let's be humbled, and then we'll be lifted up. Let's look at the sins that Jesus put right here. The first one, Jesus talks about the law. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery was the first one that he mentions. Well, we know Jesus elevated this to the intention of the heart. He said anyone who looks at someone to lust after them has committed adultery in their heart. So for those of us, and perhaps I might say all of us, who have looked with lust, either mentally or on your notes right there, I want to ask you to put a tally mark for one time you have broken the law. The next thing Jesus says here is do not murder. Do not murder. Well, we know Christ also elevated this commandment as well beyond just physical murder to hatred. He says hatred is like murder in your heart. In, in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 6, he talks about this. So for those of us who have felt hatred, murder in our heart towards someone, including myself, we can put a tally mark for that as well on your notes or mentally. The next thing that he says, do not steal. Do not steal. So regardless of the value, whether you're young or old, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have stolen something. So if you have stolen something, if you are a thief, then you can put a tally mark as well. I know I'd probably put a few right there. The next thing that he says is, do not bear false witness. Now, we could all say we've lied, right? We've all lied. We can put a tally mark for that as well. And if you refuse to do so, then you're lying to yourself right now, right? Because you've lied. The last one he says, honor your father and mother. And surely we have dishonored our father and mother at some point point in our lives and if you're like me then right now you would have five tally marks because Jesus just mentioned five sins and if you're like me there's many many more that you can mark on there as well many more and not just many more sins but many more times so not just like okay I lied but like how many times have I lied how many tally marks is that how many times have I lusted how many times have I hated all these different things. And the tally marks, they just stack up and up and up and up over and over again. We don't have enough paper for that, right? They stack up and up and up. And if you're like me, then you've thought to yourself, well, everyone sins. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if everyone sins, then maybe it's not that bad that I sin too. Everyone does it. Maybe you've thought that. I've thought that, at least to some extent. But the truth is, it is that bad. It does separate us from God eternally in a place called hell. Sin is that bad. We have transgressed against a holy, loving God. And we have to own our mistake to receive healing for that. So I want you to think about your sin. Be honest with yourself. Be honest about the shame. Be honest with yourself about that sin you've told yourself you could overcome, but you still haven't. Be honest that there's no good deed that you can do to be good enough to have eternal life, to know God. Why do we need to see our sin? Why do we need to be humbled in this way? 
Why do we need to feel the condemnation and understand how we've fallen short? Why do we need to be humbled? Let me illustrate it for you like this. I want you to imagine that you're in Alaska. Alaska is a beautiful place, right, if you've ever been there. You're in Alaska, and it's the time of year where uh, it's dark the whole year round. And you're in Alaska, you're in the woods somewhere, it's completely dark, and you're stuck at the bottom of a ditch. And you know you're in a ditch because you're walking around, you can feel one side of the wall right here, and you walk to the other side, you can, you can feel it here, and you don't know exactly how far down this ditch goes, but you know that you're stuck, and you don't think anyone's coming to save you. And this time that you're in here, the hours go on and on. Perhaps it becomes a day, maybe two days. And as time goes on and on and on, your despair increases, your hopelessness increases. And just when it feels like you've lost all hope, you hear something. And you hear someone throws a rope over the side. You can maybe barely glimpse this rope. And so you grab onto this rope and you climb out and you're saved from this ditch of despair that you were stuck in. And you're so excited. You say, praise God, right? I was stuck down here, now I'm saved. And then someone gives you a flashlight and you turn around to see exactly how deep this hole goes that you're stuck in. And if you were to turn around and look at this ditch, and it was only, say, seven, eight, nine feet deep, you're going to be thankful for the rope. That rope was beneficial to you, it helped you, but it was only that deep, if only like seven, eight, nine feet deep, part of you is going to think, well, Perhaps if I just jumped high enough, I could have made it myself, even subconsciously, even just a little bit. But if you turned around and shined that flashlight and you saw that that hole was 50 feet deep into the earth, you wouldn't see that rope as being beneficial. That rope is your salvation. That rope is everything. That rope is your savior. It's the thing that got you out. It means everything to you. Here's why we need to look at our sin. We have to turn around and see the depths of our depravity, see the depths of our sin, in order to appreciate the deliverance of our Savior. In order to really see how good God is to us. Because God is so good. So now you can say, I was lost. I was down in this ditch, down in the depths of my sin. I was dead in sin. I was dead in darkness, stuck in addiction, stuck in pain, a child of wrath. I didn't fear God. I was a follower of the serpent. I was more concerned about building wealth and having a nice big house in the suburbs. But it was the depths of my darkness and my sin. I was 500 feet down on the earth, really just living on the suburbs of hell. But God. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, he's overflowing in grace. He's abounding in steadfast love. He reached down into the darkness of my life, and he saved me into the, right into the mess that I was in. So every tally of sin that you stack up, every pound, every weight of shame and sin on your shoulders, every time you transgress against a holy God, past, present, future, became a drop of blood on Calvary's hill. Shame was shattered. Light broke through the darkness. The dry bones came back to life. The grave became a resurrection room. And a heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. I was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. Because of what Jesus did for me. I can see what he did for me. You can see what he did for you. We could not be good enough. But the good news is you don't have to be. Because there's someone who's good enough for you.
who did the work for you, who paid the price for you. I think the beautiful thing about the gospel, Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us, not that way while we were yet uh, church-going, Bible-reading, Every day, God loves us, not while we're praying every day. God loves us, not while we're doing the right things and uh, being kind to our spouse and uh, raising our kids the right way and being perfect in every way. God loves us. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, sinners, what we talked about, all those tallies, that's where God wants to love you. And maybe there's something in your mind that you've been pushing back, some tally mark that we didn't uh, address this morning, but you've been pushing it to the back of your mind. Right there, that's where God loves you. That's where God wants to demonstrate his love and power in your life. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to come in and transform your heart from the inside out. That's where God wants to show you that he loves you. In the middle of that deep dark mess in that ditch in that death but the rich young ruler he's so caught up in his own superficial goodness I've kept all these things from my youth he's caught up in his own superficial goodness that he's missing out on experiencing the goodness of God in his life where are you at have you experienced the goodness of God in your life have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? You have to be honest about your sin. You have to see your sin in order to do that. And you bring it to the cross. There's always more room at the cross. There's room for you at the cross. You bring it to God and he forgives you. He gives you grace and he changes your life. The rich young ruler says, I have kept all the law. So Jesus responds. Luke chapter 18, verse 22 when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So Jesus gave this ruler, this ruler comes to Jesus, what good deed can I do to inherit eternal life? So he's already showing his own confidence and his own goodness. Jesus gives him a chance to come clean and, and admit that he has sinned by saying, have you kept the law? Have you done this and that? He still says, I've kept the whole law from my youth. And so Jesus is like, okay, I gave you a chance. Now I'm going to call you out. Anybody know what it feels like to get called out? All the married people said, Amen. Right? Maybe your kids called you out sometimes. I'm sure that feels great. God calls you out. The Holy Spirit calls you out and says, what, what are you doing? Jesus calls him out. He says, fine, you want to say you've kept all the law? I'm just going to tell you how it is. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Come and follow me. If I was to pray, paraphrase this, it's like Jesus is saying, what you lack is what you have. He says, this is what you lack. Sell all that you have. That's interesting. This is what you lack. Sell all that you have. And so what you have is lacking to you. Okay? What you consider to be gain to you is actually lost to you. Because it is keeping you from following me. It is keeping you from experiencing God. He said, sell it all, 
Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. You're exchanging your treasure on earth for treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And come and follow me. Well, this rich young ruler, he lived a cushy life. Jesus didn't. Jesus, at this time, he's traveling from uh, town to town to town to preach the gospel, to heal people, right? And so uh, this rich young ruler would have to leave his nice cushy life, his nice California king bed, and he'd have to go and sleep on the ground in tents, following Jesus, doing ministry. That's what Jesus is calling him to. But he didn't want to trade comfort for Christ. He valued his comfort more than he valued Christ. He valued what he thought to be safe, his own comfort, staying home. And the Lion, the Witch, and the Roadrobe, there's this, there's this part of the book where Lucy, Edmund, Susan, am I missing one? Peter. There we go. You know, they the, go to the, the beaver's house. And, and this is during the, the beginning of the book. And Aslan, the king of Narnia, is supposed to represent God in this story. And so they're saying, oh, you know, our, lion, our king is a lion. And Lucy's asking, well, it's, it's a lion. That sounds dangerous. Like, have you met him? Is, is he a safe lion? And I love the beaver's reply. He said, he isn't safe, but he is good. He isn't safe, but he is good. It's not comfortable to follow Christ. But he is good. It's not always safe to follow Christ. But he is good. Something I tell teenagers all the time is like, we don't follow Jesus because it's cool. Like, if you want to do the cool thing, like, I don't know why you're here. Right? Jesus said, the world hates me, they're going to hate you too. That's what Jesus said. We don't follow Christ because it's cool. We don't follow Christ because it's always safe, because it's always comfortable. We follow Jesus because it's real. Because we're encountering and experiencing a real God who really loves us and gives us real eternal life. You won't find the blessings of God in the superficial safety of your comfort. You have to get uncomfortable. You have to take a bold step of faith. Related to this topic, I think a common misconception about Christianity is that I am, to be a Christian, I have to give up things that I want in exchange for something that I don't want. I have to give up this lifestyle to have this other lifestyle where I've got to follow rules and stuff like that. And who wants to do that? That doesn't sound like fun. I don't think that sounds like fun. You guys probably don't think that sounds like fun either. But that's a misconception. That's not what it's about. Spiritual transformation doesn't come from giving up what you want in exchange for what you don't want. Spiritual transformation happens when you come to Christ, you bring him all your heart, your wants and your desires, you take a bold step, you come to him, and he changes what you want entirely. So now you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, those things that you used to want, you don't want that anymore. It doesn't bring you pleasure anymore. Because Christ is enough. He is enough. But the rich young ruler was not willing to give up what he had. I heard an illustration that I think illustrates this well. I heard about this, how uh, hunters in India will trap monkeys. They'll hunt monkeys over there. And so the way that they do this is they'll uh, get a coconut and they'll hollow out this coconut and they'll put some rice into it, whether it be dry rice, probably sticky rice. And they'll take this coconut over to the trees where the monkeys like to hang out, right? 
And so they, they'll take it and they'll uh, tie a rope around a tree or a stake or something like that and they'll attach it to the coconut. And so this coconut's attached to this rope, attached to the stake or this tree. And then the hunters will leave. They'll leave this hollowed out coconut with the rice. And then the monkeys start to get curious. The monkeys know the hunters have left. They don't hear them anymore. And so they start to get curious. They start to smell this sticky rice from the coconut. And so the monkeys, they start climbing down their trees. And, you know, they're, they're smelling it. They're getting closer. They're doing like the little monkey walk. They're, they're like, they're curious, right? They're, they're sneaking a little closer. They kind of look inside. They see, okay, I see like the sticky rice. I'm really invested into this. If you can. So, so they, they look in and they, and, they, and they reach their hand. This hole is just big enough for their hand to reach through like this. They reach in there and they grab the rice. And then they start to walk away, but their fist makes their hand bigger so they can't get their fist out of this hole. So they reach in there, they grab the rice, so their hand is in this coconut, and they're walking away, and then one of of these things happens, right? Because it's attached to this rope over here. And so the monkeys, they're like, they're so frustrated. They're like, they're pulling on this coconut, they're trying to get the rice out. This is frustrating for them. And then, eventually, they start to hear the hunters coming. And they know this is a trap, but they, they don't let go. They're freaking out. They're making like their monkey noises, right? They're like, ooh, ha, ha. They're like, they're all scared. They're like, I can't do this. I, 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 I can't let go. And the hunters come and they capture them because they didn't let go. They didn't let go. All they had to do was let go. They exchanged a captor's bait for freedom. And this rich young ruler, Jesus, comes to him and he says, you got to let go. But he'd rather be captured by his material possessions than let go of that and pursue a life of freedom in Christ. You have to let go. The next point this morning, our notes there says, I need to let go of blank to follow Jesus. For the rich young ruler, it was his material possessions. For you, it might be something different. For you, it might be an idol in your life. For you, it might be a sin. For you, I don't know what it is for you, but it's something, right? That's why I left a blank there. It's something for you. And letting go of idols, letting go of sins doesn't mean that we're never going to fall again. But what it does is it begins a habit of repentance and putting our faith in Christ. Repentance means you're turning from sin. You're putting your faith in Christ. You're letting go. You're pursuing freedom in Christ. You're letting go. You're pursuing him. It begins a habit of that. And that habit, putting your faith in Christ, is what saves you. Putting your faith in Christ is what gives you eternal life. Verse 23. It says, He became very sad when he heard these things, for he was extremely rich. He was sad. Matthew's gospel says that he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. The next point this morning is you can get sad or you can get saved. You can get sad or you can get saved. I think a good way to explain kind of what's happening here in this guy's heart is uh, explained to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we see a comparison here between a kind of godly grief and a kind of worldly grief. What's the difference? Well, what we see here 
from this rich young ruler is a worldly grief. He is sad. He's sad. But he's not sad enough to repent. He's not sad enough to actually go and follow Jesus. Godly grief is seeing our sin, seeing the disparity of our situation, the depravity of our hearts, and then turning and repenting and looking to the Savior. That's godly grief. That's what that does. But worldly grief is looking at sin and just looking at sin without ever looking at the Savior. Looking at sin, being sad about sin without ever trusting in Jesus. It's depressing. It's living in the weight of chains, constantly obsessing over these chains, looking at these chains, but never looking to the chain breaker. It's a worldly grief. It's getting sad. And I think a lot of people live this way. Always feeling like they're never enough. Thinking their story is going to end where they're at. Maybe you feel like your story doesn't get better from here. It's going to end where you're at. It's just not true. C.S. Lewis once said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I love that. You can't change the beginning. The past happened. It happened. You can't change that, but you can start right where you are today even, and you can change the ending of your story. You can say, I believe there's a better way because there is. I promise you, it gets better than this. God has a plan for your life, but it comes from having a godly grief where you repent and you turn to Christ. Not just stay in grief, stay sad in misery without ever turning to him. Worldly grief says the ending looks like how it is for you right now. In fact, the ending looks worse than it is for you right now. But godly grief and repentance says this is the beginning of changing the ending of your story. Worldly grief makes you tired because you can never do enough. But godly grief gives you rest because you've repented and trusted in the one who did enough for you. Worldly grief keeps you stuck. Godly grief sets you free. Worldly grief makes you think there is no way. Godly grief says, hey, there's a way. His name is Jesus. But the rich young ruler walked away in his worldly grief. He wanted eternal life, but he didn't want to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 18, verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So Jesus is saying, it's easier for a camel, camels are pretty big, right? To go through the eye of a tiny little needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. I want to explain what Jesus is talking about here. Is Jesus saying that all rich people are evil? No. Well, we see Abraham was very wealthy. Solomon was very wealthy. There's examples of wealthy, godly people in Scripture. What Jesus is pointing out is the flaw of this rich young ruler, which is that his obsession with earthly treasure diminishes his desire for heavenly treasure. And that's what makes it hard for a rich person or someone obsessed with earthly treasure to enter the kingdom of God. But based on the question that the people asked him, we see this doesn't just apply to rich people. 
Because they said, then who could be saved? I'm sure none of the people that were listening there today are as rich as this dude. This guy was loaded, okay? He was loaded. He probably owned like one of those S&P 500 businesses, right? This guy was rich, okay? But the people who weren't as rich as him still ask, well, if he can't be saved, how can I be saved? Because like him, I have things in my life that I hold on to. Perhaps it's worldly treasures like him. I got things that I think, man, I don't feel like I can let go of this to follow Christ. How can, I, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus' response is, this is impossible with man, but it's possible with God. Next point is that anyone can have eternal life. Anyone can have eternal life. That's the main point. You know, this, that's what this passage is about. Who can be saved? It's impossible for man to save himself, is what Jesus is saying. It's impossible with man. We can't jump that far. We can't jump from California to Japan. Not even close. We can't jump from a sinful, being a sinful person to making ourselves holy, to be in the presence of a holy God. We can't do that. It's impossible for us to do that. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And God put possibility in our place on the cross. He made it possible through his son Jesus Christ dying for our sins on the cross. Emily Dickinson once said, I dwell in possibility. Jesus said, let's talk about possibility. It is possible for you to be saved. You may feel like there's some things in your life you're just too far gone. I don't know what it is. You know. Jesus says it's possible. It's impossible for you. God made it possible through me. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's room for you at the cross. There's room for you at the way. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Dwell in the possibility that God has created for you. The possibility that you can be transformed. Maybe you convinced yourself so many times that the promises of God aren't for you, it's impossible. But Jesus says it is possible. And that possibility becomes a reality when you follow him, when you put your faith in him. Luke chapter 18, verse 28 through 30. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. I just want to pause just for a moment. This is such a Peter thing to say. I mean, Peter, Peter is kind of like, out of all the disciples, Peter makes me think of kind of like the teacher's pet. Like, he wants the teacher to think that he's like the good guy. We see uh, elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus said, all you guys are going to betray me. And Jesus said, and Peter said, well, Jesus, maybe they're all going to betray you, but I'm not. I'm not going to betray you, Jesus. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So Peter is, is pointing out his own goodness in a way. We kind of see him comparing himself to others. He says, well, maybe these people don't do this, but look at us, Jesus. We have followed you. We have done this. And then in response, Jesus sets a standard for all of his followers. He said to them, verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. 
the last point this morning, and really the main point of the text, is to inherit eternal life, we must leave everything behind and follow Christ. This is the cost, Jesus is saying. You leave behind the treasure that you think is treasure that's keeping you from the real treasure, which is me. You leave behind that thing that's coming between yourself and me. And you trade treasure in this world for treasure in heaven, and you follow me. Really, if you look at the answer to the question, how do I inherit eternal life, really what Jesus is talking about this whole time in response to that question, if you were to summarize it, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. That's what eternal life is about. It's about being with Jesus. I once had this friend um, who wasn't a believer, and we were talking, he said he wanted to go to heaven when he died, and I said, this is how you do that. You you know, you trust in Christ, you receive him as your savior. And he said he was praying and he was trying to do that. And he's like, I just don't feel like I'm connecting to God. I don't know, maybe the reception was bad or whatever. It's like, I'm just not connecting to God. And I was asking him like, well, would you be okay with going to heaven if God was not there? He said, yeah, immediately. Yeah, I'll be okay with that. It's like, that's the problem. Heaven's about being with God. Eternal life is about being with God. It's about following Jesus. It's about being with him. But the rich young ruler, he wanted to have eternal life, but he didn't want to leave behind his earthly treasure to actually be with Jesus and follow him. That's what eternal life is, though. Jesus is saying to him, leave behind your superficial comfort and follow me. He talks about different things that you uh, can sacrifice. He says leaving house, wife, brothers, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God. And some people do have to leave these things. Right? Some people do, especially in countries where there's persecution, they have to, in a sense, be alienated from their family because of their faith. Their family pushes them out. And Jesus is saying, this is the standard. Anything that comes between you and me, you let go and you follow me and you will experience God. Leave behind your superficial comfort and follow me and you will find rest for your souls. You leave behind this faint comfort you follow me, you're going to find a real comfort. You leave behind this fake idea of safety you have, you're going to find real safety in Christ. I want to end by looking back at the first two words that happen in this dialogue here. The first verse we looked at uh, was in Luke 18, verse 18. The ruler comes to him, and the first two words that he says are, good teacher. Good teacher. Like, Why are we going to focus on the words good teacher? Well, I think he thought Jesus was a good teacher. And I think to some, I think he believed the words that Jesus said. He believed that they were true. That's why he was sad, right? He believed that what Jesus said was true. If he didn't believe it, he could walk away happy like, oh, whatever, like, I love my stuff. But he walked away sad because he knew that his stuff was bringing him down, but he couldn't let go of it. So he called Jesus good teacher because he believed that his teachings were true. He wanted to learn from Jesus, but he didn't want to follow Jesus. And all across the world, perhaps, all across our country, people go to church every Sunday to learn from Jesus. And I think all of us here this morning would call Jesus good teacher. You're here to learn the teachings of Jesus, right? So we'd say Jesus is a good teacher, 
But this rich young ruler, he called Jesus good teacher, but he never called him Lord. So this morning, you, you probably call Jesus good teacher, and that's good. He is a good teacher. But have you gone beyond that to call him Lord, Master, Savior? Go beyond just learning to living to actually following Jesus, experiencing God and his goodness for yourself. You can do that. You can do that. God made a way. God loves you so much. He sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave so you can put your faith in him and have eternal life. And then when you do that, in a moment, your life is transformed forever. In a moment, you go from death to life, from sinner to saint, from gone to grace. In a moment, God can change your life forever. When you leave everything behind and you follow Christ, that's when you can really experience for yourself what it means to have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and look at your word today, God. For answering the question, how can we inherit eternal life, Lord? God, we look at the words of Jesus in this text about how we need to be honest with ourselves about where we are with our own sin, with our own struggles, God. We need to be honest with ourselves about the things that are keeping us from you, the things that we need to let go of. God, I pray that anyone here this morning that has something they just need to let go of to run after you harder, faster, that they would do that, Lord, that you give them the boldness, the courage, the strength to get uncomfortable, but really to get real with you, to get real with, you, with others as well. God, we thank you that you made a way through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the possibility was put in our place on our cross and that anyone can have this eternal life, God, rich or poor, no matter how bad we've been, no matter how many tally marks we've stacked up, that they are all just a drop of blood on Calvary's hill because of what you did for us, God. And we thank you and praise you for that, that you made a way for us to inherit eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.